Welcome to season four of the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, with your host, India Lorick Wilmot. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are in conversation with Charity Elder. Charity is an award-winning journalist and media executive with 20 plus years working, leading in broadcast and digital newsrooms. She is also an educator at Fordham University, serving as an adjunct professor in their communication and media studies department, and profiled for New York City Media's Vanguard Women in Media in 2016, Charity was named on Folio Magazine's list of top women in media. In 2020, she served as a senior advisor to the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign. Prior to the campaign, Charity was the head of video and podcasts for Yahoo News at Verizon Media, leading a team of innovative producers redefining news in the era of immersive journalism. She was a television news producer at both CBS News and NBC News. To add to the list of several titles and accolades Charity holds, we can now include author. Debuting this month is Charity's new book entitled Power, The Rise of Black Women in America through Skyhorse Publishing with distribution by Simon & Schuster. I am sure the audience can't wait to learn more about what it is like being a Black woman journalist and media executive and the impetus for her new book, Power, The Rise of Black Women in America. Welcome, Charity. Hi, India. It's great to be here. I'm eager to take a walk with you and learn a little bit more about your journey of belonging to Blackness thus far. So are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's get into it. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. Charity, as a journalist and media executive, your field affords you the opportunity to tell stories. It presumes relative objectivity, but, you know, we understand that stories are often framed in particular ways. So what or who inspired you to pursue a career in journalism and media? I decided I wanted to become a journalist after I had the opportunity to do an internship through the city of Hartford while I was a college student at Trinity College. During the summers, I worked at the Hartford Public Access Station. And it was an amazing and wonderful learning opportunity for me because I learned how to edit, I learned how to do interviews. I learned how to cover local politics and events that were happening in the communities. You know, I caught the bug. I just loved everything about it. And so I decided after Trinity, where I got a bachelor's in sociology, I would pursue a master's in journalism. I decided to go to NYU. It's really what I thought would help me launch a career that is often very difficult to get into. When you did your internship, because it seems as if the internship was really the impetus for placing you on this path around storytelling, what does it mean to be a Black woman telling stories? And was it something about the kinds of stories you were telling through your editing and through interning in Connecticut that sort of gave you a framework to say, okay, these kinds of stories are important. And this is why, as a Black woman, I should be telling these stories. 
What I liked about that internship was the focus on the community, holiday events, covering that, covering the ways in which the city would control speeding down certain streets and whether it was working or not. I mean, really local community situations covering the state, Republican and Democratic conventions was very eye-opening for me and the way in which you prepare for those things all of the things that are involved in doing that. You know, the other thing about storytelling is that I read a lot as a child and I learned that stories can transport you to another world. So whatever was happening in your day-to-day life, stories could take you somewhere. They can inspire you. And so as a Black woman telling stories, I've always been interested in stories that talk about the uplift of Black people During the time that I was growing up, it was really well known that whenever a local television station interviewed someone in the Black community, we were always portrayed in the worst possible light, right? It was sort of the assumption of, and today would be called respectability politics, but they would pick someone whose hair wasn't done or just in any way, just trying to show that Black people are lesser than in some way. So for me, I've always had an interest in stories that spoke to our humanity, not to our perfection in any way, or to create a certain false narrative, but spoke to us as full, beautiful, complicated human beings and stories of our triumph that always really spoke to me. And it's the stories that I always wanted to tell. And so in the newsroom, And not to single out any particular institution that you worked for, whether it was Yahoo, CBS, or NBC. But when you were in these spaces, particularly before the camera and then behind the camera, what are the types of stories that you chose to tell and present to the public, understanding that you might find certain stories that you deem as important to amplify, particularly about the African descendant experience, but that may not necessarily be the focus of those who are more senior or those who are focused on ratings and that sort of thing. So how do you reconcile the obvious capitalistic component of media versus the kinds of stories that you deem as equally as important to tell? It's a great question because it's at the center that many marginalized groups in society contend with in the newsroom. And there has been concerted effort, particularly since the 70s, of diversifying newsrooms for all types of groups that hasn't really come to fruition in any sizable way. Like when you really look at the numbers, there hasn't been much progress. Things are obviously somewhat better, but we need a lot more progress. And so that tension between what I might consider to be news, what is or newsworthy, what is valuable or important to me from my perspective or gaze as a Black woman, and I'm descendant from slaves, what's important to me versus what the business of media or the press considers the actual audience that drives advertising dollars and fits the age group in terms of earning and making money. And also the other aspect of the news media is that it's really competitive, right? And so not only are you contending with the advertising dollars, you also want to be seen and heard in a very crowded, 
hyper-connected world where there's a ton of content. And in doing that, decisions are made about what's a good story and what isn't a good story. And so an example I will tell from earlier in my career when I was at CBS News, it was during a period where we were telling a lot of stories about missing white women, Natalie Holloway, Lacey Peterson. And so during that time, I pitched a story about a Black girl who was missing in Maryland. I went to my senior producer, like I said, it was earlier in my career, and I said, this is a great story. We should look into this. Missing girl, it's what we do. And I was told that the story would not resonate with our audience because it wasn't a story that was relatable to our audience, which in code means it's not relatable to white women because I worked for a national morning program and that was a sizable chunk of our audience, you know, stay at home moms watching the program. So it was interesting to me for obvious reasons, the story behind the girl that was missing was messy, family issues, all these things. And they wanted a perfect, you know, upper middle class, beautiful, preferably blonde, though not always, person that can be sympathetic and who deserves to have sympathy, who deserves to be found. What happened to this person? So those tensions between what I might be interested in versus all of the other things that the newsroom may be interested in, and also my senior producer, who is a white male with children and daughters, and what they find interesting is really key. Lastly, I would say As I moved up in terms of leadership and position, I was able to select stories that were important to me in the Black experience. During the 50th anniversary of the Poor People's Campaign, which was Martin Luther King Jr.'s last big march that he was planning before he was assassinated and actually never got to participate, I wanted to do a series or a collection of stories around it. And I gathered my team together and we did something and not because I had support for doing it because I didn't really, because it wasn't seen as sexy or that it would generate a lot of attention, but we did it because I wanted to, and I was responsible for the budget and for the team. And so we did something. That's where my viewpoint as a black woman telling stories comes into conflict or that tension being in the journalism business. I appreciate your response, and I especially appreciate the point that you're making, particularly when it comes to public discourse and mass media specifically around worthiness and value. And there's always this interesting attribution about who is worthy, why are they worthy, why have we assigned value to them and to their lives? And oftentimes the African descendant experience and in in our humanity isn't something that's valued. In many ways, it's because within the capitalist system here that has made the United States, we were never people. We were always the commodity to be traded, to be exhausted upon and so forth. And so I think in many ways that helps to frame the lens through which our stories are being told about us. And I think that your presence, along with others, particularly behind the camera in production, in terms of individuals who have the opportunity to pitch stories to say, this is worthy, this is a value, this is something that we need to focus on, makes a difference. So thank you for being present, you know, and I think about it in ways in which I think about folks who are in entertainment, like 
the Issa Rays and the Oprah Winfrey's and others, Black women specifically, who are saying there's diversity in our stories and this diversity is worthy and valuable. It also leads me to ask a follow-up question around platforms because you've worked in the traditional sort of newsroom entities and then part of your expertise is also around digital platforms. So when you reflect on the various forms of media, do the platforms matter when it comes to specifically African-descended storytelling or is it just having our voice out there that matters? Regardless of the platform, telling Black descendant stories, African descendant stories is super important. And I have a framework and a belief that Black people should not cede anything or any area to anyone. We should be in all the spaces that interests Black people, primarily because our stories are worth being told, as I know you agree. And that's why we're here. <laughs> that's why we're here. And that's why you have this lovely podcast. Our stories should be told, but we also, as creative people, should be able to express our creativity and our stories in every way possible. When I think about different movies or podcasts or other stories that have been made, some of them I look at them and I'm like, so I don't have an interest in that at all. Right. But it was a story important to somebody because they lived it or experienced it or reminded them of their grandfather or what have you. And so it is important for African descendant stories told by African descendants to be on every platform technology makes available. I like the subtle distinction that you made where it's basically a FUBU for us by us. Yeah, but it can be consumed by anyone. Right. You know, history has taught us and has shown that because Black bodies, particularly that of Black women, have been commodified, right, it then becomes super important that we are in charge of how our stories are told, but also how they are monetized. Mm. Because there has been such a betrayal from slavery till now in terms of our right to tell stories about ourselves and then to make money from our own stories. That's why I make that distinction. I'm not saying that you have to be the same race or whatever to do whatever. So I'm not saying that, right? But it is important for us to be in the game. To participate and to be able to squell any of the fodder that's out there and actually put forth the diversity of all of our experiences, right? Because my experience is not the same as yours and we're both Black women living in the United States. There are a lot of similarities, but we have particular perspectives and viewpoints. And to be able to have platforms available to be able to showcase and highlight these stories and amplify them, it's incredibly important in terms of just the many different fabrics that comprise the quilt of Black humanity that we're enveloped in. As a sidebar, I also think about, and you've worked in this space in terms of podcasting, there are 2 million podcasts worldwide. And so thank you to the listeners out there who are spending their time listening in on this program. But when I think about specifically the Black women who are podcasters and the kinds of shows, there's even diversity in that, right? So I'm choosing this platform to tell these kinds of stories. And that might be fine. And people might 
find interesting and resonate with this kind of programming. And then you have other podcasters who are far more popular talking about sex and sexuality and a host of other kinds of issues and themes and topics that other people might find resonate more with them. And it's not that one is wrong or the other one's right or what have you. It just really speaks to our diversity. But the platforms allow us to show representation in ways that technology didn't afford us just 10 years ago. And I just can't wait to see what technology affords us 10 years from now in terms of how we continue to be represented and how our voices show up. That's right. I would just like to add quickly that not only is it important just for society to see the nuances and the differences of Black people, but I also believe it's important for Black people to see that because so often the images that abound are like, this is what it means to be a Black person, right? And I have certainly been in spaces or in environments at Jazz where it's like, you know, I'm expected to be the snapping the finger, head turning Black person, or that I know every rap song, and I don't, right? And that's because of how I was raised and what was important to my parents. And so it also is allowing for those differences also have more grace for each other in terms of who we are and how we are and how we show up. Be what you want to see. Act two, the road. So Charity, your book, Power, The Rise of Black Women in America, is a Lovely meditation that celebrates African-descended women's everyday strength, resilience, and determination to succeed, along with their expressions of joy and love and excellence in a world that isn't always just. And as I read the book, I felt that each chapter demonstrated all the ways Black women be knowing and the ways in which Black women's knowing is her power and that the possession of power goes beyond the typical narrative of depravity wrought by white supremacy. And so your book and its anecdotes reveal elements of truth-telling that I think happens at the nexus of Blackness and womanism. So your book, Power, The Rise of Black Women in America, is really, in my opinion, a call to action for us to be able to have deeper conversations about where society can go and how we can get there when we stop oppressing and start protecting Black and Brown women. So for our audience, please share with us, what was the source of inspiration? Like, why is it important to tell this story and why tell the story now? The impetus to write Power, the Rise of Black Women in America came out of a conversation with a white man. And in 2016, November, a few weeks after Trump had secured presidency and he was president-elect, I was attending a work event in Manhattan. And I ended up in a conversation with a former Newsweek editor, someone I didn't know previously. And we were chatting. He said something, and I don't remember exactly what, but he said something that prompted me to say, what do you mean? It's the best time in America to be a Black woman. Now, he looked surprised. And, you know, when you think about in context what was going on in our country at the time, this is 
few years after Trayvon Martin, but there was also Micah Brown and Eric Gartner and all of these examples of police brutality against Black people. And then you had Trump who ran this hateful, misogynist, xenophobic campaign. Then he won. I took the look on his face to mean he could not understand how I could find value in myself. What was going on in society and our country at that point also had a lot to do with it and knowing history. And so after that encounter, a day or two later, I searched Black women and African-American women on Google. So it's really hugely scientific. And I just wanted to see what came up because he was like that shocked, right? Which I did understand to some degree. And everything at that time, because I think the algorithm has changed based on all the research I've done (laughs) so far for the book. But what I searched, and I kid you not, every single article, every single academic study, every survey, whatever that came up, it all spoke to lack. Black women lacking in terms of health care outcomes, like health outcomes, job insecurity, you know, the lack of mates, even to random polls that were done that found that Black women were the least desirable women in this country to men. Got people building bodies to emulate ours. So true. And I just was like, oh, that's interesting. I don't feel that way. I'm very proud to be who I am and all my frailty and vulnerabilities. And, you know, as we've spoken to my own humanity, I'm fully aware of that, but I think I'm pretty great. And I have family members and friends who think the same things about themselves, irrespective and with deep understanding of the country we live in and slavery and colonialism and neocolonialism and white supremacy and all of those things, having an understanding of it. It just sort of lodged in my head that, interesting, Black women believed, understood that we are dope, but clearly the rest of society doesn't understand what we know. And and then you fast forward a couple years and Stacey Abrams ran for governor and there were other Senate races in Alabama and some state races in Virginia that really showed the power of Black women in terms of voting and getting out the vote and showing up at the polls. And so that started me on this journey. Now, that's great because really the power that Black women wielded at the polls were phenomenal. That's right. In many ways, we were undercounted. And we showed up in ways that was really interesting. So the race I referred to in Alabama between Roy Moore and Doug Jones and all these awful child abuse allegations came out against Roy Moore, but he probably would have won if Black women didn't show up and really sway the vote in Jones' direction. People weren't expecting that. Always the underdog, you know, the perception. And so I think that's why the title of your book, how it includes the word as well as the concept of power. So how do you define power? And if you could, maybe you can also speak to a little bit in the ways in which the data, not Google, the data sources, (laughs) the scientific, highly resourced and researched data that you were able to cull that really helped to amplify your thesis as well as your definition of what power is. I looked at power, really understanding power in the context here in the United States. And a lot of that is influenced from Western 
understandings of power that date all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And so in all of the research and studying I did, and also just really thinking about my own life and other stories of people I interviewed, I define power as like not a zero-sum game. It's not about just winners and losers. It's not the Machiavellian idea of power, which again, he's part of that white male Western tradition of understanding power. But I saw power as Black women being able to create lives of meaning and joy. So that means we get to define what is a life worth living, first of all. And then second, Black women have the ability to then go and realize, actualize, to create, to manifest the thing that drives them, that gives them purpose. That's how I define power. It's about being able to create a life of meaning and of joy. And one of the white Western philosophers define power as Max Weber, and I'm condensing this greatly. Basically, that power is the ability to make happen what one wants to happen in spite of obstacles and resistance, right? And so that's why, for me, it is so essential that Black women can create lives of meaning and joy, because from the moment our African descendants stepped foot on this continent, all of that was taken away. We could not create lives. Our power was taken away to create lives of meaning and of joy. And instead it was often defined by fear and misery and constraint and not being able to make happen all the things that you are capable of doing. And at the heart of, I believe, the discontent my fellow Black sisters and brothers, you know, still contend with is that feeling that they can't make happen what they want to happen in their lives. And so for me, power is that you are able to do that for yourself and for your community, but primarily you can make things happen. So that's an interesting point, too, because I would think that the white capitalist supremacist structures, and so this is almost like that nice chain that Bell Hooks would talk about. Bell Hooks, yes. (laughs) Um, But I think those structures in and of itself serve to try in many attempts to dampen our abilities to assert the power that you're defining and talking to us about. It's always been there. There were covert ways that we as a people engaged in opportunities to amplify our power, even if the structures itself would try to kill us or assault us. Your premise is, and I agree, that joy, that healing, that resiliency is always in us as a people. What are the ways in which you've seen it actualized? Like, so what does the data tell us that I think that most people would be surprised to learn about the ways in which Black women specifically have never allowed these systems of oppression to dampen our power. That perhaps that same gentleman that you spoke to from Newsweek probably didn't understand or get. That's right. So my reaction was based off of when we started the podcast, Black Women Be Knowing, you know, based on an inner knowing that I understood and the gentleman at the work event I was at did not understand about Black women. And so 
my definition of power and also how I see Black women, how I perceive us to be, I wanted to quantify that in some way because it was important to me that the book was not about solely my story and those of my five Black friends. And that I wasn't talking about this small little niche of Black women or some special talented 10th, as it were. I was talking about that all Black women have contributed to our power and to where we are. And so in the data, I had two forms of data. One was analysis of the U.S. Census data, and then one was a poll that I did with Marist. And so I'll speak about the U.S. Census data first. And I did analysis, as I mentioned, with some really smart people at the University of Minnesota. Essentially, what I was trying to answer at that point was how have Black women done compared against themselves over time? Not compared to white men, not compared to white women, which is the rubric against which everyone is measured, which is wrong, frankly, and can't really tell you the full picture. So Black women over time against themselves for various reasons. And if you get my book, you can read it, but we don't have time to get into it here. We looked at three areas to see, you know, how are Black women faring in the U.S.? So we looked at real median wages, accounting for inflation, educational status, essentially how far you go, and occupational status in terms of professional managerial roles. And what data showed was that Black women's rate of increase from 1940 to 2019, so that's 80 years. So in that 80-year time span, Black women ages 25 to 64, rate of increase, and I'll just use one example here, in terms of real median wages was 1,000%. That means Black women grew, how fast they grew in terms of the amount of income they were making every year. And so that includes every single person that identified as a Black woman on the U.S. Census from 1940 to 2019. Now, as just a rate of context, I did the same analysis for white men, for white women, and for Black men. And for white men over 80 years, 25 to 64 years of age, their real median wages grew 300%. And then for Black women and white women, it was about the same percentage, around 300% or so, right? So against all the things that have happened in society, against economic downturns, recessions, wars, Black women steadily rose in terms of income. And that's a very different picture than what we're normally told about how Black women are doing, at least in terms of median wages. When you have a a thousand percent rate of change and progression of at least our economic situation as having being improved, it forecasts something else. It gives us hope, the potentiality for a promise of us being in a better position to not just earn income, but to be able to think about different pathways for developing wealth and investing which is very different from, say, even as this rate was going on, this increased rate, we still had narratives that are persisting around the Black welfare mother and how we have all of these children and we're sucking the system dry. That's the public discourse. That's the prevailing trope or narrative around Black womanhood and Black maternity, too. The data is telling us otherwise, that 
we're developing other kinds of pathways for enhancement and building. But that doesn't negate the fact that things aren't still hard, right? So we can have growth and we can have progress and we can have rate of change by employment, occupation, so forth. But that doesn't necessarily diminish the fact that things are not equitable. There isn't parity. There isn't equality. But I think your data is bringing us awareness, would you say? Yes, it's awareness. And and I do think it is important to understand that over the same time period, you know, the rate of increase in income was a thousand percent. And just to be more clear, Black men was 600 percent, white women and white men were both 300 percent. And so how is it that we grew that fast? It doesn't just mean we grew rapidly. It also signals something about Black women and being able to do that under really difficult circumstances. Like in the book, I mentioned how we did this while our hands were tied behind our back, our leg was cut off, we were blindfolded. And to your point about inequality and parity and the issues around that, I mean, Black women today make 64 cents to the dollar that a white man makes. But the difference in terms of how I see the story, it's that a thousand percent growth, which is really who we are right, in the face of that adversity. And so my message to Black women and to Black girls is keep going because we are making strides, you know, as opposed to saying, oh my God, we're still 60 something cents to the dollar that white men earn. If we were actually focused on, if we can do this well, imagine if we have an understanding of how well we've done and not just in real median wages, but in other ways, it is a signal to Black women to say, wait a minute, I ought to just like stand up, recognize the power I have to create a life of meaning and joy, and then go after it. Because right now, generally speaking, some people aren't really focused on that because they know the realities of what we face. We have the realities we face and we have to fight those forces and change them and make it where that's not the case, right? But we also have to be, you know, encouraged that we have the ability to exercise power. We won't have time to get into it, but I think harnessing that power in terms of the daily joy and healing and resiliency is essentially the premise of this framework that you talk about in the book called The Lemonade Lifestyle, which I greatly appreciate and encourage folks that when they buy the book to really delve into it, because that's the framework from which you're operating from. But what I wanted to say to you, or at least share an observation, is that your book also provides a very compelling perspective regarding feminist alliance and the relationship between Black women and white women. And so in terms of intersectionality of race and gender and nationality and class, et cetera, why is this relationship between Black women and white women fraught with mistrust? And is it possible to overcome? Because I'm already projecting that it won't just be Black and brown women who are purchasing and reading your book. There might be other women as well, and particularly white women who might read the book and try to see, well, how can I be an ally to this movement and this premise? 
but again, it's still talking about this relationship that you point out that is filled with mistrust. So is this possible to overcome? And what do you have to say? Thank you for that question. Because the book looks at power in terms of what Black women have, but it also contends with the power dynamics between Black women and white women in particular, and also between Black women and Black men. Because I think understanding those dynamics and how we operate in them is essential to how Black women live in our power and live, as you mentioned, in terms of the lemonade lifestyle that I talk about in the book. Your question is a great opportunity to bring up the Marist poll, which is the other part of the data, original data that I looked at. And so in October 2021, I worked with Marist poll to do a national poll, and then we oversampled for Black women. And a question that was essential to me was, do Black women trust white women? And the reason why that was or is an important question is that white women are one of our oldest allies in the fight for justice, right? You can go back to you know, the fight for suffrage and Sojourner Truth and all of that, right? There's a history and a legacy of that. But there's been a deep history of betrayal Black women feel in regards to white women. So I wanted to explore that. We asked Black women if they trust white women a great deal, a good amount, not very much or not at all. And 43% of Black women, four out of 10 said they do not trust white women very much or at all. 57% of Black women said they do trust white women in some degree. Four out of 10 is pretty sizable. And you also have to think about, did any of the Black women feel any sort of tension around putting, they don't trust them when they have family members married into their family, they have nieces and nephews, or they have coworkers or, you know, college roommates or what have you. And so at the center of that distrust, which was higher than it was for Latin or Asian women, and certainly Black women trust each other a great deal. There was a difference there. And a lot of it comes down to history and the times in which white women had opportunities to support Black women. White women chose whiteness over gender. And this happened repeatedly and in different iterations of feminism, all the different ways of feminism it happened. We saw it happen most recently in the contention between the Women's March on Washington and how that all fell apart around, essentially, in my analysis that I use in the book around Black women and white women. And so there's history and there's that feeling that even someone like Toni Morrison wrote for the New York Times 50 years ago talking about why Black women were not a part of the women's lib. And she said that Black women look at white women and see them as the enemy, for they know that racism is not confined to white men, and that there are more white women in this country, and that 53% of the population, talking about white women, sustained an eloquent silence during times of greatest stress. So it is a central dynamic, this distrust, And then, you know, why does it matter? Well, in terms of allyship, I don't know if it can be really reconciled in terms of having true trust. It's been broken over and over and over again because Black women, we can't dissect our gender from our race. We are both and have to contend with both. And white women can, when necessary or when they want to, lean into white supremacy and what that affords them. 
And so the truth of that reality and the choices that white women as a group, I'm talking as a group, have made, have made that trust very contentious. And I argue, do we need to overcome the realities of that tension? We're at a point now where we can go to the same college, we can work in the same offices. Do we have to pretend that we all trust each other? And I have many white friends. I shouldn't even say many. I have few really good white friends, the ones who are actually my friends, but they are my friends (laughs) because they see me as a human being. They see me as funny and quirky and smart and curious. They see me as a person and I'm not something to try to understand or to reconcile whatever guilt or non-guilt that they have. I didn't mean to giggle when you said that because I understand, you know, I think sometimes and even beyond race too, even though that's your example, sometimes people will say, well, I have a transgender friend and I have this person with disabilities friend. And these are not friends. These are people that you know of that you traverse similar social spaces with, but you know nothing about, never really sat down and had an opportunity to really kind of talk about what are the things that bring you joy? What are the things that bring you pain and hurt and really are proactive in terms of trying to understand and to make their experiences enhanced or better, right? But everyone's quick to say, oh yes, I have friends. So I didn't mean to giggle if that was a distraction, but I think it's something to be really said where you're saying, look, I actually have some true friends who are really in the trenches to say, that is not my experience, but I want to learn more and understand and understand my own biases in ways that can help support you in a myriad of different ways and in the process support us but I didn't mean to giggle. (laughs) (laughs) I figured you giggled because I was making the distinction between people I know or acquaintances and then actually saying someone is a friend and someone I can say I trust. I understood that. I can see perhaps, and not to pick on them, but a group of white women who will read the book and the book is an excellent book and then walk away from, well, what can I do? Right. Especially if they're like, oh, I have black friends and how can I be a better ally? And I could see them being stuck in this, but I get the sense that you're making certain kinds of arguments. I don't think that there are particular lessons for white women, or am I just wrong? No, you are correct. I am unabashedly focused. I have written this book for Black women and girls to propel us forward in our lives and using our power to create lives of meaning and joy and purpose. And, you know, I'm not saying that that shouldn't be for white women too, because they should also have the opportunity and the freedom to live those kind of lives. It's just my mission, my purpose is not to help them see me my humanity. My purpose is to really encourage and inspire Black women to know we are killing it. And I'm not talking about Oprah and Beyonce. I'm talking about all of us. The data that I look at is not just for a certain type of Black women. It represents all of us, regardless of how easy or hard our lives may have been or the oppressions that we face. And 
I just have no interest in centering white women or anyone else in this narrative, which is why I did the data the way that I did. So if a white woman were to say to me, what can I do? I mean, I would just say, treat me like a human and you can like me or not like me. I mean, I think we all have the right to like or not like someone, you know, in terms of their personality or what have you. You know, I am not a social experiment to understand or to wade through. And so I think Black women, more of us should spend more time focusing on where we're going. And those other people, if they want to learn, they'll learn it. (laughs) There is so much information out there. I mean, they can go on Google and type (laughs) how to be a good ally. And there's a lot of information out there. And there are a lot of Black women who are engaged in that work. I just don't want Black women to forget to engage in our power and in our story while we're trying to teach somebody else who may be unteachable. Mm. Maybe, you know, 100, 150 years ago, it mattered a bit more. But our story isn't exactly what it was 150 years ago. Black woman, if Harriet Tubman, who I adore, if Harriet Tubman could understand that she could be free when she had no example of freedom and you know, embark on that journey alone, then what excuse do we have? What I appreciate about your book is also the art, the cover art in terms of the promise and the reaffirmation in the premise of your book. I look at the colorful design. It's just like, wow, this Black woman that's surrounded by flowers. Mind you, it's cover art that's by the artist Kara Muthigo Oyakunle. How you apply and utilize her art really, I think, captures the essence of the premise of your book. And I think it's powerful. And I think that it perhaps even translates these sorts of lessons and affirmations that you're trying to share with your readers. And so I want to applaud you for that. Thank you. Yeah, Carol is amazing. She's a Kenyan American who now lives in France with her daughters and her artistry is beautiful. And her name, for that image is, which I get a lot of feedback on, is good hair, Mm. right? The hair is represented by all these beautiful flowers. And what I love about it is it seems to represent, to me, Black women across the diaspora, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the diaspora. In terms of when you see the image, it has a very international feel, which I really appreciate. And Carol is just like an awesome woman. So thank you for bringing that out. Act three, where we land. Charity, so we've reached a point in the show where this is an opportunity for my guests to talk about and to share any upcoming projects or innovations. So for you, what are some of the upcoming book talks or tours you have lined up? As well as, hey, where can people find you? When can we get these (laughs) books in our hands? Where can we go see you, log in? Oh, thank you for that opportunity. Best way to reach me is through my website, charityelder.com. I am on all the socials as well, using my name. And so I have events coming up in New York, Georgia, and the Boston area throughout the year. And I will be in California for a bit too, in a couple of weeks. So There are lots of ways to reach out to me and to come see me. And you can find that information on my website, charityelder.com. 
There you have it, folks. Charity Elder here talking about power, the rise of Black women in America. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us and sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness. Thank you for having me. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.